Um, okay, and that's just there, but go ahead. Cool. Yep. So first of all, thank you to Jen for making this beautiful uh, poster. It's yeah. so pretty. I sent it to my mom. She was very proud of me. <laughs> um, and I also want to thank my colleagues from Presbyterian, who I work with every day, who are here as well, and are experts in this. Um, so uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dr. Martin. I am the ER psychiatrist for Presbyterian. Um, it's really exciting that Presbyterian we're in five ERs, uh, three here in Albuquerque and two in Santa Fe and Espanol, and soon to be hopefully in four more. So um, we're really representing a large portion of the state, and I'm excited that I get to be part of the team in, um, in this regard. I went to medical school here at University of New Mexico and went away for training in Atlanta. And this became um, a, a really um, important part of my training, um, trying to distinguish between um, what we call primary psychosis or people who experience um, illnesses like schizophrenia versus um, psychotic symptoms induced from an intoxication from a substance. And so today we're gonna talk a little bit about the differences with that, the nuances with that, some of the data around it. Um, and have some fun throughout it. So if you have questions on the network, please feel free to um, just type them in. Hopefully, I think Rob can help me out. Yeah. And um, anybody in the network too, um, in the room, if you need to interrupt me, please do. So this is a little bit of an objective is what we're gonna go over. We're gonna define psychotic symptoms um, and you know the subtypes of those, of what we call psychotic symptoms. We're gonna theorize the neurobiological basis of psychotic symptoms. We're going to discuss psychostimulants, two in, two in particular, and, and one that you know, we have a problem with here in New Mexico and their clinical effects, as I think it, it will help everybody to understand on the network um, the, the variances between um, primary versus substance-induced. And then we're going to directly compare those um, psychotic symptoms and what we know from the literature. Okay? So let's first start by talking about an old white man. Um, anybody know who this is? Just an old white man. <laughs> Just another old. No, so the, I'll give you a hint. It's a German philosopher. German philosopher. German philosopher. Nietzsche. Okay. No, this is Immanuel Kant. So. So close. Yeah. So in the late, <laughs> you all remember this. In the late um, 1700s, he had a theory um, which he called transcendental idealism. And it was pretty important um, at that time, pretty um, groundbreaking for people. Um, and the concept of it is essentially that the world as we perceive it is intrinsically a generated process. It's not shaped by external objects, such that it's um, essentially the interaction between observer and the observed is constrained by our senses. And all of our senses are essentially subjective, right? So it restricts our scope of cognition um, such that um, things independently only exist as we interpret them or experience them. So I'm sorry if I'm taking some of you far too back to philosophy class, but I think the, it's important to understand um, in the context of hallucinations this concept. And, you know, one way I've always thought about this, Whoa. yeah, right, <laughs> is the concept of color and how we perceive color. So my blue sky might be pretty different from your blue sky. And there is a phenomenon, um, it's typically the most common forms of colorblindness are inherited, um, but um, th this is described in this condition. So colorblindness or color deficiency issues 
um, can exist primarily uh, affects mo mostly men because um, the hereditary form um, exists on the X chromosome. And I'm sorry, men, you only have one of those. So when you have a genetic defect, you oftentimes show this. So the most common form is red-green colorblindness, followed by blue-yellow, and then um, total color loss. And this is just an, uh, you know, just an attempt to show what it is that normal vision versus these colorblindness um, um, uh, people who have colorblindness experience, right? So that's one example, but the, the real fundamental subjectivity of perception is, I think, most vividly illustrated by the phenomena of hallucinations. So what are hallucinations? Well, really, they're a false sensory perception that's occurring in the absence of the actual external stimulation, okay? And they can occur across every sensory modality. Um, so some of these we hear a lot about in their um, intuitive, auditory, and visual, or the false perception of sound and sight. Um, but we also see, you know, tactile, so the, the false perception of a physical experience that's localized within the body. And then less common and definitely more uh, indicative of a medical or neurologic etiology is olfactory um, or the sense of smell, the false perception, false perception of smell or odors. Um, and, you know, both with the olfactory and gustatory, you would wish that it could be a good smell and a good taste. It's never a good smell and a good taste. Um, usually, um, these, like I said, um, they predict some sort of medical or um, neurologic issue. So they can occur in seizures. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who suffers from epilepsy, but sometimes they know that they're about to have a seizure based off of a sense that they get a really awful smell of sulfur smell before or after the seizure. can also represent a mass lesion, a brain lesion. Um, they can occur in dementia as well. And then with gustatory, um, typically, again, like I said, it's, it's, it's pretending some um, medical etiology. And people describe like a burnt sugar, metallic, or salty taste that they have. So who experiences psychotic symptoms? Well, well we know that patients that have schizophrenia, they report auditory and visual hallucinations um, about 70% of the time over their, uh, their lifetime course of the illness. But they also occur in a broad uh, range of other psychiatric illnesses. So bipolar disorder, about 11 to 63, pretty broad range. Think about this in terms of their mood episode, right? So psychotic symptoms are much more common for severe depression or a manic episode, a severe manic episode. Uh, borderline personality disorder, I know we've talked about this in the network before, um, can experience what we call micro-psychotic episodes, so 20 to 50 percent of the time they can have that. We've talked, um, I've spoken about autism spectrum disorder, and 20 percent of the time people can experience psychosis with autism spectrum. And then PTSD about 50 percent of the time. But really, psychotic symptoms are not just constrained to a psychiatric illness. They can occur across you know, all domains, medical and neurologic diagnoses. And so we kind of talked about these a little bit earlier, but cognitive disorders, um, so people who are born with intellectual disability um, can have you know, problems with psychosis, epilepsy, seizures, um, hearing loss, or, or even migraine headaches. And what we tend to see is that the people experiencing psychosis with neurologic diagnoses tend to have an illness that's affecting the temporal cortex. We'll talk about that in a second. So why, so why do these happen? Well, there's, you know, a lot of, uh, there's several theories that exist around it. Um, a couple groups have talked about overactivation of the auditory cortex in the brain. We'll talk about those specific areas in a second. Um, but then also, you know, some groups have talked about misattribution or misidentification of an internally generated area of speech or generated events, right? Like labeling those incorrectly, um, or even a disturbance in memory retrieval. Has anybody in the room ever experienced deja vu? 
problems. This is an example of um, probably an error in our memory retrieval, either having the idea that you've had this experience happen before. Um, and it's a really odd feeling, right? Doesn't it feel gross when you have that, that happen to you? It's maybe a little peek into what um, a psychotic symptom might be. I actually have a question sure. uh, on the previous slide that it affects, uh, sorry, mm -hmm. even more, yeah. Uh, people who live with autism spectrum disorder, 20% report psychotic symptoms. Psychotic symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, does that have a correlation with how high on the spectrum they are versus how Yeah, good are. question. Um, I think that certainly with, with a, like a nonverbal person living with autism spectrum, they wouldn't be able to tell you about this subjective experience. So it's not that we don't have a lot of good data on it. Um, um, but there are a number of psychiatrists, very early psychiatrists, German psychiatrists, who think that autism spectrum and schizophrenia are very close related in terms of the etiology. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So we do know there's a neurobiologic basis for hallucinations. And um, very early MRI studies um, reported a significant um, association between an area called the superior temporal gyrus. And I don't know if y'all can see. Is there a pointer on this? Oh, no, no, no. You had it, though, on the mouse. Oh, OK. So this is the, this is the um, superior temporal gyrus here. And so early MRI studies really show that the volume of that and the um, severity of auditory and visual hallucinations in patients with schizophrenia is associated. Okay. Um, and we've also seen the same thing with cortical thickness reductions in other areas. So specifically in Heschel's gyrus, which is this purplish, if that's purple to you, um, <laughs> of the transverse temporal gyrus. And that contains our primary auditory cortex. It's a really important part um, for, um, you know, for processing the uh, uh, sense of sound. It's called Brodman area 41. Um, and then also Broca's area up here, which is in a very important uh, place for speech output or speech production. And then Wernicke's area as well. And that's um, very important in terms of speech comprehension of the left hemisphere. So we, we see this um, cortical thickness reduction in all those areas with people with primary um, psychotic illnesses. And there's not a number of other really neat studies, um, sometimes frankly difficult to understand, where we talk about diffusion-weighted MRI changes or functional MRI changes, and then patterns of connectivity being changed with somebody who's living with primary sequences. But despite all of these studies, we really don't have um, in totality an answer as to where, um, auditor, where um, psychosis comes from. So I want to spend a minute talking about something that I think you probably hear psychiatrists or people working in um, mental health talk about, which is um, the you know, positive symptoms versus negative symptoms. You sometimes hear us say, oh, they're, they're having a lot of positive symptoms. And what this really refers to is that in schizophrenia, um, we categorize, like most things in medicine, we like to categorize things. And so um, the symptoms of schizophrenia really fall into three categories. And, and, and these are them, the positive symptoms, the negative symptoms, and the cognitive deficits. Okay? And so positive symptoms is not saying that we're glad this person has this particular symptom. It really just refers to symptoms that should not be there. Okay? So those are things like hallucinations, delusions, um, disorganized thoughts, so unusual or dysfunctional way of thinking. And then um, you know, psychomotor agitation as well. Uh, the negative symptoms doesn't refer to the patient's attitude, but it's really the, the lack of characteristics, right? If, if you've ever spoken to somebody who's, uh, who's living with schizophrenia, you might notice um, it's a little bit odd, right? Like you don't get some of the social reciprocity that you have um, with another person who doesn't have schizophrenia. So there's reduced speech, 
Um, even when they're kind of encouraged to have a conversation with you, um, they may show lack of emotion or expression, and that's that affect of blunting that we talk about. Um, and then maybe even uh, poor ability to begin or sustain activities, like just not really doing much. Um, and then anhedonia, which is the decreased ability to find pleasure in everyday things and social withdrawal. And then we're not going to spend as much time talking about the cognitive deficits, but these are things around difficulty with memory, attention, planning, decision-making, which might make the behavior of somebody living with primary psychosis seem really odd to us, right? Um, there was a patient that um, I think Martine and I have both seen um, at UNM who really, really liked the um, aerosolized cheese and couldn't really tell us why it was that he made that decision to ingest aerosolized cheese, but he really liked it. What is it, cheese whiz? Yeah, cheese whiz. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's kind of dork out for a minute and talk about um, the monoamine dopamine, which, um, you know, I never like to, to break to somebody's illness down to a specific chemical, but we do have to talk a little bit about dopamine for everyone to understand the nuances between primary psychosis and substance-induced psychosis, okay? So dopamine is just one of a few monoamines. Um, and we have um, three long dopamine tracks in the brain that are pretty important um, in terms of the clinical features of, of a psychotic illness. Um, so the first one up here in blue is called the mesocortical area. And that uh, projects from the, um, from the ventral tegmental area and terminates in the, the primary cortex up here. Okay? And, and this is thought to really propagate the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Second is the ni nigrostriatal, um, and this is um, this one here in green, and um, it projects from the substantia nigra um, and uh, goes predominantly to the striatum. So for the, the student, medical students in the room, that's the claudic nucleus and the putamen. Okay, and this is where most of our dopamine gets synthesized in the brain, and it's the major component of the extrapyramidal motor system, which is why oftentimes when we see patients who are on um, a medication, antipsychotic medication for a long time, end up having movement disorders. Right. And then finally, mesolimbic, which is this pink one here. And that also projects from the ventral tegmental area um, to the amygdala and other portions of what we call the, the limbic system. And um, the limbic system is really in control of emotions and memories and behavior. And so it, it appears to propagate the majority of the positive symptoms that we see in schizophrenia. And so, you know, antipsychotic medications try to block dopamine transmission in these tracts and um, therefore reduce dopamine activity in the brain and, and you know, hopefully limit um, most often the positive symptoms of schizophrenia. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about specifically auditory hallucinations. And I think that you know, knowing if symptoms are atypical really requires an understanding of what patients experience. And we do know that there's considerable um, you know, individual differences or nuances in the phenomenology of auditory and visual hallucinations from patient to patient. Um, but what we, what we like to talk about are um, some clarifying ways of talking about auditory hallucinations with our patients. I'm not suggesting the officers in the field talk to patients about these. Maybe one in particular, and we'll get to it. But um, I think this is, this is the nuances of what a psychiatrist or a mental health professional is asking about when somebody is endorsing auditory hallucinations. Um, as a side note, there's this really cool artist that I'm feature, featuring in these um, slides. Um, his name is Darren Legallo, and he does a lot of work 
around the human psyche and the um, subconscious mind. And so we're, we're going to show you a couple of, of photos of his or paintings of his. So we're really asking about volume and clarity of somebody's auditory hallucinations, right? So does that volume change throughout the day? Um, is it something that they can ignore? How clear is the voice? Is it mumbling or is it as if somebody was a you know, speech pathologist and enunciating every word? Is it a continuous or intermittent voice? Is it originating inside or outside the head? How many voices are there and how familiar they are? I, I, I have to say I meet a lot of people who tell me that the voices are, you know, their grandmother and it's not bothersome to them at all. Um, the gender of the, the voice, if they do have a gender, and whether the voices, if there's multiple ones, talk amongst themselves, have conversations. The one that I was kind of alluding to that officers might want to consider asking about is this command quality. What we seem to see is that as people get sicker in a psychotic illness, um, that commands um, start to come up and become harder and harder to ignore. And then finally, do they have insight? Do they have an awareness that this is happening and that it's abnormal? And I think that'll really help us to differentiate between these two um, subtypes of substance abuse versus primary. So I'm going to pose this to the network. Um, we have gathered some, you know, and I think the data could probably be updated, but not a lot of people want to, to study this sort of thing anymore. But we have some data really differentiating what somebody who has primary psychosis might experience in terms of their auditory hallucinations. So what do you think? Do you think most people who have schizophrenia uh, find that their voice is female, male, or both? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's actually both. 75% of patients with schizophrenia hear voices of both sexes. How about this one? Does the voice originate inside or outside of your head? For schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. For schizophrenia. I would say if it's a voice, typically people report it comes from inside. Okay. They'll report other sounds that come from outside. Mm -hmm. Anybody on the network say anything? Inside? Inside. Okay. Yeah, it's 88% of patients say outside. Outside of their head. Um, how about hearing a voice in another language? Interesting. So one head shaking no. Is that a yes well, or no? no? <laughs> um, Officer Dixon with APD, I was wondering if um, they, if, if pre, if, they, if them being bilingual has an uh -huh. effect on that, yeah, or if question. they would just identify gibberish as another language they don't speak. Yeah, so I, I think this question is more directed at somebody who speaks one language. Then so my question would be there is, are they actually hearing another language or are they just identifying what could potentially just be gibberish mm -hmm. as another language? Yeah. So I think you answered the question. So it's in their primary language, most people experience that. It's interesting, though, if a person's bilingual, they can experience um, hallucinations in both. Okay. But yeah, it's 98% of hallucinations are in the, the person's native language. And how about this one? How about um, anything making the voices less acute, meaning you know, less bothersome or less um, severe? Yeah, 70% of people with schizophrenia say that they have some coping technique that they can do to make the voices um, not as you know, um, difficult for them. How about um, voices being clear or difficult to understand? Clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 93% say it's clear. And then how about um, familiarity? Famili familiar or unfamiliar? Looks, looks familiar. 
Officer Hinkle Zaleski says the persons I've dealt with heard them in the primary language. This was from one of the others. Um, and another one on the network said familiar. Yeah, trick question, so it's both. That one's both, about 88% have experienced both familiar and unfamiliar. And I included these, I think, you know, it's really important to understand that um, hallucinations can change over time too, right? Just because somebody's having hallucinations does not mean they're dangerous. So if 50% report a positive effect, they feel comforted by the voices. Um, when we talk about um, egocentonic or egodystonic, meaning like whether someone's bothered by it. So egocentonic, they're not. Like it's just part of their life and they, they experience that. And then 98% over a lifetime of the illness report negative effects. Um, going back to that command quality hallucinations, uh, 30 to 60% of people experience them and 40% report obeying those commands. So I think thinking about our case earlier, um, it would be really helpful for the officers who are interacting with him if he's endorsing hallucinations to ask about command quality because he has some pretty dangerous delusions and targets specific groups of people. Um, so he might have a hard time ignoring those commands. Yeah, there is, sorry, Shen CAU. Um, there is a note in his case file that um, officers should ask what his voices are telling him what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good. Rob Garnan, CIU. So in relation to that case we presented, mm -hmm. it seems like a, a prime example of primary psychosis, but when it onset. I think so, right. So we were think so what you were saying earlier is that it sounded like his symptoms started around age twenty-three. And unfortunately, you know, being a, a young male of that age, without in the absence of, of a comorbid substance use issue, it sounds like given the longevity of his symptoms, that's most likely the primary diagnosis. Okay, so let's let's take a sidetrack to psychostimulants and talking about um, psychostimulants. So, you know, we use this umbrella term to talk about any drug that has a sympathomimetic effect. And by what we mean by that is that they mimic the effects of an endogenous or our own body's ability to produce these um, chemicals that stimulate the sympathetic nervous system. And I know in previous lectures on the network, we've talked about what the sympathetic nervous system does. That This is really our flight or fight symptom, um, system, right? This is the system that if you get scared, causes your heart rate to go um, high. Um, and so these drugs really mimic that those effects. But they also target those two long dopamine tracks that we talked about that are really important in terms of positive and negative psychotic symptoms. They target the mesocortical and mesolimbic tracks. And um, that really seems to serve as um, the neural substrate for drug addiction, right? Why, why they become a powerful um, issue for, you know, a powerful addiction for people to deal with. Um, and what are the two most common and powerful drugs in this class that you think we deal with? Perfect. What's the other one? Opioid? Cocaine. No? Yep, cocaine. So opioids work on a completely different system as the mu receptor. They do have some of you know behavioral um, issues and certainly addiction, but they work differently than a psychostimulant. So they're not classified as that. So let's talk a little bit about them. Okay, so cocaine, and this shows you the chemical structure of both powder and crack cocaine. Both cocaine and methamphetamine do this, but they essentially bring out dopamine from these little vesicles in the nerves, the presynaptic storage vesicles, and then prevent it from being um, taken up in the, in the um, synaptic space. So what, what that basically means is we have a bunch of dopamine just floating around, right? 
It also, to a lower extent, blocks the reuptake of serotonin and norepinephrine, which are also monoamines that we didn't talk about. And these two seem to cause some other you know, issues. So serotonin presumably produces the euphoria that we see when people use cocaine. And the norepinephrine is, is what causes our sympathomimetic effects. So like arrhythmias or, or heart rate abnormalities, um, high blood pressure, uh, vasospasm that usually can result in cardiovascular issues, and then pupillary dilations where pupils get even really big. Um, plasma in liver enzymes can you rapidly metabolize cocaine such that the half-life is pretty short. It's about 30 to 90 minutes. Um, but our toxicology straight, uh, 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 screens in the, in the hospital can detect the, the metabolic products of cocaine for up to three days. Okay. <clears throat> So in effect, you know, the, the, this dopamine, this dump of dopamine into the presynaptic space causes this intense euphoria, an increased sense of sexual, physical, and mental power, hypervigilance, madriasis um, or the pupil dilation, and then the suppression of rapid eye movement sleep. sleep. And we've talked about sleep on the network before. Rapid eye movement sleep is really when our brain is consolidating memory and getting that healthy, restful sleep, right? This is when we train. So cocaine suppresses that. So again, in, in intoxication, you'll see people very agitated. I have a question. Yeah. The, the cocaine and the REM sleep. Mm -hmm. So people don't sleep when they're high on cocaine. Right? If they do sleep, they're not sleeping in rapid eye movement. Okay. Yeah. But it, it's not like they're come off of it and that night they try to sleep and then their REM sleep is screwed up. We'll still. talk about that actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So in intoxication, you'll see people who are agitated, hallucinating, having delusional content like paranoia. Um, and then from a, a medical standpoint, you, you know, you can get really dangerous level of hypertension and prolonged hypertension can relate to cardiovascular events like strokes, myocardial infarctions or heart attacks and seizures. We also see this involuntary movement or like repetitive purposeless behavior. Um, and, you know, you can see examples of this. It's, it's pretty sad, actually, when people are intoxicated. They call it the crack, the crack dance, and it looks just like somebody doing these involuntary movements that are not at all like a, an actual dance. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you dance. You know, but, <laughs> and then you know, prolonged or chronic exposure can lead to cognitive impairments. Um, those cognitive that cognitive um, you know area that can mimic schizophrenia. So you know, trouble with attention, verbal learning memory, and then from a mass perspective, just, you know, complete atrophy of the cerebral cortex, so shrinking of the brain. Is there a question? Oh, we got it. Okay. It, there was a question about cerebral atrophy, whether or not oh, was yes. it, because it appeared to come. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's cerebral atrophy. All right, everybody. And then with the withdrawal, once somebody is coming off of the cocaine, people rapidly, they have this crash, right? They rapidly lose their energy. They have difficulty appreciating normal, pleasurable activities, so anhedonia. And suicidality is pretty common as well. So people can look profoundly depressed. Um, and this is why Seroquel or Quetiapine has such a high street value, um, because Seroquel seems to um, help with the depletion of some of the monoamines. Um, that have just gotten used up with cocaine and, and why people will sell that on the street. Um, but then to answer um, Dr. Rosenbaum's point is that when you've not had restful rapid eye movement sleep, you have um, rapid eye movement rebounds. So your brain will catch up in terms of 
of your sleep debt from rapid eye movement. And people can experience these pretty profound, disturbing, vivid dreams. And it feels like they're not sleeping well. And this is one of the, the biggest complaints that people who are um, newly sober from psychostimulants complain about is just awful nightmares. And that does go away, um, but it takes time. Rob Gurney on CIU. Uh, doctor, we heard you know for a long time that cocaine was being less and less utilized, mm -hmm. but recently I've heard that it's kind of making a comeback. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing it more in hospitals? I have to say, locally, I don't see it as much as I did in training in Atlanta. This was this is you know, pretty much what I saw in residency. I know that um, Dr. Gonzalez probably could speak differently to his training here. Um, and, and, and we'll talk, but there's one slide that we'll talk about kind of the, the regional differences in psychostimulants. Um, but you know, we, we see some of it, not as much as methamphetamine. Yes, Martin Gonzalez, UNM. For um, at least my experience, methamphetamine is so widely available and so cheap um, that tends to be the stimulant that we typically see. Not to say we don't see cocaine, um, but meth is, is typical. Okay, so with that, let's talk about amphetamine. Um, methamphetamine really is just the addition of a methyl group to this amphetamine. So we have prescription versions of amphetamine, and yes, they do get abused. Um, methamphetamine is just you know, simply that addition of the methyl group. So the way that this chemical class works together, not just methamphetamine, but all the amphetamine products, is that, again, it provokes that presynaptic uh, discharge of dopamine and then prevents the reuptake of it. So just dumping dopamine into the presynaptic space. Um, to a lesser degree, has some of the norepinephrine activity, um, but its half-life is much longer, right? So cocaine is 30 to 90 minutes. Amphetamine products typically 8 to 12, and methamphetamine being longer because it's lipophilic, and meaning that it can be across the blood-brain barrier. We have a protective barrier um, from our blood, our blood system to our brain that is really... Yeah, it's, it's helpful in preventing infections going to a really you know, valuable and vulnerable organ of ours, which is a brain, um, but methamphetamine can cross that pretty regularly. So it can last even longer. Okay. So the effects are very similar because of the dopamine activity and some, to some lesser degree serotonin and norepinephrine, but it causes euphoria and that same sense of increased sexual, physical, and mental power. It causes that hyper-alert state and people don't sleep as much, and they have even more reduction in rapid eye movement sleep. Um, we do see people having excoriations of the skin, and some of this is related to a sensation that they have something crawling under their skin, and so they pick at it. Uh, but we also see mucosal injuries from people smoking the, you know, the, 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 the drug, um, oral pharyngeal burns of ferns inside the mouth, and then gingival, or um, the parts of the, um, of the teeth that kind of cover the roots, hypertrophy or global growth. And then, you know, what seems kind of unique to methamphetamine is this extensive tooth decay and for what we call meth mouth, you see that, right? You see people who are relatively young but have really awful dentition. And this is three part. Um, in, in chronic use, it's due to bruxism or grinding of the teeth. And that's likely, you know, due to overstimulation of, of dopamine and that, you know, motor symptoms. Decreased saliva production, so our saliva actually does help to, to, to protect our, our, our teeth, um, and so they don't have as much of that. And then poor dental hygiene, not, not rushing. So sorry, I'm sure that some of this is cut off too, and I'll, and I'll talk about that. But in, in intoxication, again, you see severe agitation, hallucinations, paranoia, 
and grandiosity, like really thinking people you know, can do anything, right? That they can fly, that they're Jesus, that anything else that's you know, grandiose in nature. You also see the hypertension and sweating, diaphoresis, and the involuntary movements. Um, but you'll see somebody picking. I'm sure you might have seen that in the field, people picking um, um, at old, old lesions or new ones. Um, and in terms of life-threatening intoxication, we really can see this severely agitated delirium, hyperthermia, or their body temperature going really, really high, breakdown of muscle um, mass, which is um, rhabdomyolysis, and then um, subsequent metabolic issues because of that, right? changes to their um, electrolytes, um, and eventually cardiovascular collapse. And so this part that's probably cut off is that chronic use can still, you know, just like cocaine can lead to long-lasting cognitive impairments and psychiatric disturbance. I'm not sure if we've, we've talked about this on the network before, but there's a researcher who studies methamphetamine uh, um, in, in terms of what it does to rats long-term, and he compares it to TBI. And it's a really non-elegant study that he's done in the past where he's um, taken a group of rats, exposed them to methamphetamine, and taken another group of rats and murdered them with a hammer, and then compared those brain cells under the microscope, and they look the same. So when we have patients come into the ER and say, I just used a little methamphetamine, that's equivalent of saying, I just got hit in the head by a hammer a little bit, right? So it's, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a pretty profound substance. In withdrawal, and this is over chronic use, people crave that stimulation and have dysphoric mood. Although I have to say, um, I don't see as much suicidality related to withdrawal from methamphetamine that I did with cocaine. And then the same vivid disturbing dreams because of rapid eye movement, sleep rebound. I have a question. Mm -hmm. I think it's the UNM. Um, I think it's just because of my lack of exposure to cocaine, um, not personally, but <laughs> <laughs> among the patients I see. Um, with methamphetamine, we see punding, the repetitive with you digging through the carpet or taking things apart. Um, I equate that to some disorganized behavior. Do you see that as much in cocaine? You do, and you see it with opiate use disorder too, that people um, become convinced that they've left some portion of the drug that they haven't smoked or ingested yet, and they're searching for that. And I think that's probably more related to the like, memory retrieval issues, having trouble with immediate recall of what was just done or said a few minutes before. Um, right, but you do see that. You do see that with most of the psychostimulants too. Okay, so why the picking? I think it's because of formication, the sensation that they have something crawling underneath the skin. Yeah. Professor Dixon with APD. That was an interesting point to bring up. One of the most common behaviors I see a lot of the times when I deal with people who live on the street is they will uh, meticulously empty out their bag or their cart or something mm -hmm. when I can tell that they're under the influence of something. Mm -hmm. I've, I've always figured it was a disorganization thing or something like that, but mm -hmm. that kind of brings a, an interesting yeah. insight to why they might be so meticulously searching through their bag of what looks like nonsense. Right. And you see the same thing in severely intoxicated patients with alcohol, and it's mostly memory retrieval at that point. They just can't remember where they put that phone a couple minutes ago. It's in <laughs> Other questions on the network? Okay, keep going. So this one group in Canada, did this cool study comparing cocaine versus methamphetamine or methamphetamine products, classified it as amphetamine. Um, you know, we know that both of these drugs cause this rapid and sustained increase in the synaptic levels of uh, dopamine. Um, 
and that in long, longer term use and chronic use, um, people can have something referred to as psychostimulant induced psychosis or substance induced psychosis, which really symptomatically resembles schizophrenia and can be almost impossible to differentiate in that moment. Okay. But this group looked at the direct comparison of psychotic symptoms with cocaine and methamphetamine using what's called the PAN scale, the positive and negative syndrome scale. Um, and what was cool is that while all three groups, so they compared am amphetamine dependent is this black um, square, cocaine is this dotted circle, and then both methamphetamine and cocaine dependent are this you know, gray solid line. They compared um, all three groups and while all of them exhibited high PAN scores, the positive symptom scale was significantly higher for methamphetamine. So this is the positive symptom scale. This was significant here for methamphetamine. So more severe positive symptoms. So why is this important to us? A couple of slides I thought were pertinent is that this is data from 2013. And this is related to um, drug sentencing for state. I was a little surprised by this. I'd actually like to see, you know, certainly think our political and legal climate um, has changed uh, a little, but um, might show some other areas. I've always thought that methamphetamine was so localized, but look, look at the majority of the states that's in blue, are the states that are in blue. And for me in training here in Georgia, it was definitely cocaine, most of the South. Um, but this is uh, methamphetamine overdose rates by state. So you know, certainly maybe the legal repercussions of using drugs is different, but we're, we're seeing a lot of people dying from methamphetamine overdose. And I had no idea Nevada was that bad. And then, you know, finally, there's um, this really cool website called NMIBIS. It's the New Mexico <coughs> Department of Health. It's an indicator-based information system. They have some really cool data that you can, that's, you know, interactable. You can scroll over things and you know, get some information. But this is our, you know, youth, uh, grades 9 through 12 by county in New Mexico who have used and this is very alarming to me, considering what it is that we know methamphetamine does to the brain in, in chronic use. Mm. This is data from 2017. So um, here we are in this minty green color. Um, but Valencia and, and Sandoval counties just bordering us um, seem to have a problem too. Okay. I was looking at bugs in ninth grade. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's talk about some of the nuances with substance-induced arterial hallucinations. Again, there's a lot of you know, variants, but we tend to see patients describing um, you know, noises or music or unintelligible voices. It's pretty uncommon for people to act on command hallucinations when they're substance-induced. Voices are typically described as originating inside of the head as, as opposed to outside. And then individuals are, are, are addressed indirectly, right? Like so commentary being made, but not necessarily directed at them. And then the reality testing or insight regarding their hallucinations may or may not be intact. Um, specifically with alcohol use, we tend to see people hearing a commentary on everyday life, like, oh, you're getting up to put on clothes. Just really you know, annoying, but also not very meaningful content. Um, but that spiritual and persecutory content can be common, so um, some, some negative thoughts around that. And 40% of people who have alcohol use sort of don't actually accept those voices as real, so they have intact insight as to the fact that they're not actually happening. 
What about visual hallucinations? We've mostly just concentrated on auditory at this point. So visual hallucinations can also be common um, with primary psychosis and certainly with substance, um, substance use disorders. And so what we like to talk about are the, the, the nuances of this in terms of um, qualifying factors, just the type. Um, are people experiencing full-sized images or small, that Lilliputian effect? Are the visual hallucinations in color or are they black and white? And then what's the timing of symptom onset and how often do they occur? So those are qualifying questions we ask around visual illuminations. And in terms of primary psychosis, people usually see full size and in color where they open and close their eyes does not matter and they can appear suddenly and that can be pretty distressing for people. Whereas with substance induced, we often hear shadows or you know, pre pretty uh, nondescript um, sort of occurrences, flashing lights, moving objects. It can also be vivid color shapes or objects. Specifically, think about hallucinogens like LSD causing this sort of thing, and then you know either small or large sorts of images. And and then just to say, you know, hallucinations can occur non-pathologically. So we have um, as we're going into the uh, awake brain is going into the you know the, the stages of sleep that we've talked about on the network. Um, two non-pathologic hallucinations can occur. And I'm sure everybody in the room and on the network has experienced these. Um, so we can have hallucinations that occur as we're falling asleep, and those are called hypnagogic. Um, and then ones that occur while we are, are awakening, and those are hypnopompic. And people can become certain that this, this has happened for them. And really, to their brain, it did, right? But it's just as they were making that transition from awake brain to sleep brain when they occurred. People often experience the sensation of falling as one of these. And so then a word about delusions. I know we've done entire lectures on this, but um, delusions are really disturbance in thought content or content of thought. Um, it's a fixed false belief that's based on incorrect inference about external reality. And people hold on to these beliefs despite what everybody else in society thinks or what is, you know, incontrovertible evidence or proof against the delusion. So these are very difficult to deal with in terms of treatment because people are certain they exist. Again, they can be, you know, congruent to someone's mood or incongruent. Um, and really, I think for officers in the field, exploring the content of the delusional system can help to evaluate how organized that delusional content is and then the conviction of it. Right, so again, tying back to this case, this person seemed to have a pretty organized um, delusional content around the five species, five mm -hmm. species and like five races, yeah, races yeah. superiority of races, and of course believing in some grandiose way that he was, you know, part of some elevated version of that. Mm -hmm. So somebody's conviction about their delusional system really occurs on a continuum, and it can change from, um, you know, from the course of the illness too. So it's always important to ask about. Um, and for this man, I think like asking about those symptoms, right? Those are popping up again. Because that drove his behavior, mm -hmm. sending emails to the pastor. Mm -hmm. Again, because we're, we like to categorize things in psychiatry, they can be bizarre or non-bizarre, and there can be themes. So you hear all of these different themes, paranoid and persecutory being most common. I have to tell you, people who are using methamphetamine always feel that there's a black car following them around. It's like a just a, a very common paranoid delusion that people experience. Maybe maybe the cartels are following them. I don't know. But, um, but, yeah. Um, 
but they can also occur in other sorts of themes. So grandiose, meaning again, that they think they're, you know, something really special. And that can be dangerous if someone thinks they can fly and they're going to jump off the bridge. Um, jealous type, um, the wife is cheating or the husband is cheating. Somatic, guilty, nihilistic, and erotic don't happen as often, but they do come up. So in the nuances with this, so primary psychosis tend to have a full range of content and they can be bizarre uh, and the complex delusional systems develop over time. So I, I saw a patient in residency who um, was a, um, uh, a man who struggled with schizophrenia way up into his um, early 50s. And he really had a lot of odd beliefs about flora and fauna uh, to the point where he actually had two separate campers where he would just collect oddities. And he had a lot of beliefs around them and had gotten so complex that he had built his entire world around it, right? Everything that he owned in his possessions had to do with this delusional system he had. Um, whereas substance-induced paranoid, again, is most common to the being watched, being followed, someone's outside, there's helicopters outside, that, you know, that car's following me. And they don't tend to have as many grandiose or what we call capgrass imposter syndrome, someone's replacing another person, delusions. So again, more suggestive of primary psychosis is bizarre, ideas of reference, um, meaning that, you know, they, they believe um, some sticking point for them is like, uh, something something's more meaningful for them than another thing. Thought insertion or thought broadcasting where people are controlling their thoughts or um, they're controlling other people's thoughts. Okay. So I promised Dr. Easter from last week, if anybody didn't catch um, his uh, Alzheimer dementia talk, it was very good. And he briefly talked about the, some of the subtypes of dementia. One in particular that comes up is something called dementia of Lewy body um, disease. And so, um, you know, Lewy body psychosis looks very particular, and it, this accounts for 15% of all 15% of all cases of dementia. It's named for these, you know, intracytoplasmic inclusion bodies, these spher spherical bodies. This is a, making my husband proud here. The histo histological Lewy body, and that's fine. They get deposited in the cerebral cortex, particularly in the areas that we talked about earlier, right in the left, the left cortex. And patients who have um, Lewy body dementia can have visual hallucinations that come up very early and you know, sustained throughout the entire illness um, that are very detailed. They can provoke fear and confusion for the patient. So <clears throat> unfortunately, they are not responsive to antipsychotic medication. And oftentimes, it makes them worse. So pretty scary for people. So ultimately, what is there is there a difference? We often don't know in the acute phase. So you officers out um, in the field, you might not know. And frankly, the psychiatrist evaluating the patient in the ER might not know either. But we try to find some information about those differences, both the qualities that we discussed, but then also other things, right? So in this case presentation, this man seemed to have psychotic symptoms that came up at an age that would make him you know, seem pretty suggestive of primary psychosis in the absence of, of substance use, right? Um, <clears throat> And then, you know, his age, right? The younger age was more likely to be primary. Um, we also we look at family history. So people who have a family history of substance use issues or primary psychosis might direct us in, in one way. And then symptom appearance. Did the symptoms of the psychosis come up before heavy drug use was ever a problem? What we do know is that people who have mental illness use drugs too um, and, and use them at higher rates at times. Um, so 
one of the, the one questions I, I love to ask is if a patient's had interaction with the with the law with law enforcement and has had prolonged periods of incarceration, we actually might be able to tell a little about a little bit about their symptoms, right? So if they're in a setting that I would hope and theoretically is controlled for substances and the substance, you know, the symptoms go away, well that that's probably more indicative of a substance-induced picture. Mm -hmm. um, so gaining that history, talking with people. Um, is important. Uh, thanks for the so, uh, question I have. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the symptoms and the characteristics with substance and without substance. Mm -hmm. Is there any research of um, if there's both, mm -hmm. if it leans more towards one or the other, is there any way to tell that it's both as opposed to just one or the other? It's so hard to tell and it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg situation, mm -hmm. right? Um, where, you know, um, I, I briefly talked about substance-induced psychosis, and so with enough methamphetamine over enough period of time, people can look like they have schizophrenia and backtracking and say, would you have ever developed these symptoms of psychosis without methamphetamine? We don't really know, but likely not. And I think for me, personally, uh, you know, in the discussion of marijuana, this is where I get um, um, a little bit soap, soapboxy about our youth who are exposed to the potential of legalizing marijuana and then potentially um, and, ver and very good data from Scandinavia and other European countries shows that if somebody has a propensity for psychotic symptoms, if they start using marijuana at a very vulnerable time of brain development, that they're more likely, five times more likely to develop psychotic symptoms. And so while there's lots of people who are on the you know, pro-cannabis side of things talking about what we might do with um, tax, you know, taxing that money or, or even um, destigmatizing that in terms of legal repercussions, there are repercussions for young developing brains as well. Yeah. And then, you know, finally, the degree of insight. Most people who have substance-induced psychosis tend to understand that these symptoms worsen with their use. Um, but we get into that great territory when people are, you know, may have the propensity for that. So finally, I don't know if these colors are your colors, but today is Holi. This is a Hindu event. This is a Hindu celebration, a Hindu holiday, um, and it's on my bucket list of something I want to do, but um, it, it celebrates the arrival of spring with colors, and this is literally what they do. They dump pigment all over each other. So, um, so I'll take any questions if you have them. Mm -hmm.